everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. You try to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. I bet you wouldn't have done anything like this if Mom and Dad were here. You filthy criminal. Excuse me while I whip this out. Go ahead. Make my day. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Computer, initiate emergency medical holographic program. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. Ah, welcome to Everything Old is New Again. This is Douglas Viviani with our very own holographic image himself, David Cohen. Yes, I am here, Doug. <laughs> We're excited this week because listeners of this show know and are well aware of our perchant uh, of all things pop culture, of course. But we usually have a Star Trek reference that appears in our show every week, if we can. Now, that opening reference... And that oh, what we just did, you heard that right? The little yes. holographic, sure. It's a little bit of a hint as to what's happening, but it's no longer going to be just a little bit of a pop-up reference. We this week are pleased and excited beyond belief to have a gentleman that is from Star Trek Voyager, David Cohen, who is our guest today. Well, this week we are proud and excited to have upgraded the computer system here in our studio and are able to access the Star Trek. Voyager EMH, the, uh, for those of you who don't know, the uh, emergency medical hologram himself, Robert Picardo. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, David. You said pleased and excited. I didn't hear the word honored to have me on the show, but I'm going to assume that there was a glitch in what? our audio connection and I just didn't catch that word. Yes, we had blocked it out, but you're right. We probably should have read it anyway. I'm delighted to be here. I, uh, I, it's an old expression, but I have a face for radio. And, uh, and I'm happy to be uh, speaking to you now. <laughs> Join the club. That's why we're, uh, <laughs> that's why we're going to be uh, a kismet here together. And I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, people have not experienced uh, or understand Robert Picardo's uh, work in the past. He was Dr. Dick Richards on China Beach, Coach Cutlip on the Wonder Years, and have a, a pivotal role in Stargate and Stargate Atlantis, both of those shows, along with appearing with an unending list of movies, uh, unending list in an unending list of movies and TV shows since the first appearance in Kojak in 1977. Listen to this for two seconds. Loves you, baby. You're beautiful. He loves your baby. Now tell us, uh, we have to ask, we've got to start at the beginning here. Uh, Did you have an experience or any interaction with Telly Savalas on that show that uh, have any significance? I did. I had, uh, it was a two-part episode, um, and the the story idea is that uh, uh, Telly's character, Kojak, uh, went to his favorite Italian restaurant, I guess, every Friday night at the end of a work week, and had dinner there, and the man who owned the restaurant, played by a wonderful actor now, passed away named Sully Boyer. Sully Boyer was, uh, in Dog Day Afternoon, he was the manager of the bank who has a heart attack in many other movies, and was a, just a terrific, uh, gentle, kind man, and played my sensitive and thoughtful Italian-American father, and I was his bad kid. I was getting mixed up with bad kids in the neighborhood, so he goes to Kojak and asks Kojak to help straighten out his, you know, 21-year-old son who's uh, getting mixed up with bad kids. And I had, uh, 
I was uh, very surly and argumentative with Kojak, and I had a big scene where I'm in the restaurant where I just yell at him. I just I'm on a tear, and I scream at him and tell him off. And in rehearsal, while I was yelling at him and foaming at the mouth slightly because it was my first big scene on television that I was shooting, um, a little tiny glob of spittle uh, flew out of my mouth and traveled uh, in the air about seven or eight feet and landed on the top of Telly Savala's head. <laughs> oh, man. Now, uh, Telly Savala's head famously had nothing on it at all, so even a little tiny glob of spit sat there like a Volkswagen sitting in a driveway. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what to do. I was, uh, uh, this is my first job as a as a, a member of Screen Actors Guild. I didn't know what the protocol was. I didn't know if you spit on the star of the show. I didn't know whether you just ignored it and let it air dry or whether you rushed up and buffed it out. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I, but it was a moment that my, you know, my heart stopped for a second. And then uh, after the scene, after we shot the scene, Telly got up, kind of slapped me on the shoulder and said, good kid. So I guess I did a good job or, you know, that he... It wasn't the first time someone spit on his head by mistake. Or he didn't notice. Is that possible? No, he noticed. It's possible he didn't notice. I don't know. I think he was being gracious if he didn't notice. I learned so much doing that guest star. I knew nothing about film acting. I mean, I had been on film, you know, maybe in an educational film before or something or a student uh, film in high school. I had really done nothing on film to speak of. And I didn't understand that when you had a scene with the star of the show, he wasn't always there when you were shooting your part of the scene. I mean, it's, an, it's a lesson every actor learns, and it's considered a courtesy on every movie and television set that, that the actor that is off-camera for you, even if it's a big star, that they're there to deliver their lines off-camera, but it doesn't always happen for different reasons. And Telly had, a, you know, I'm sure, a very... Uh, he had long days working on the show, so... After we shot the master shot, the wide shot, where he gets out of his car parked about half a block from the police station, and as he's walking along the sidewalk, I fall in next to him and start to talk to him. Um, and uh, and then we stop in right in front of the police station, have a little, you know, over-the-shoulder kind of a confrontation. Um, and, then, uh, and then he walks away and goes inside. I don't remember exactly what the scene was, but I know that uh, in rehearsal, I... I thought he was from reading the scene. I thought, oh, he's going to yell at me and kind of you know try to straighten me out. And in the in the in the master shot, he's kind of mumbling and barely knows his lines. And you know, we just fall in the position, and he just mumbles his lines. And then he goes off to his trailer while we shoot my close up, and I look at the middle, the palm of the director's hand right next to the camera, which I'd never done before. And you know, the palm of a hand doesn't have two eyes to look at, and it doesn't have a mouth moving. You don't really right. know where to look at it. And so, um, <laughs> But anyway, when he came back after we shot my scene and I reacted to him the way he had been in the master, which was he's kind of mumbling and quiet. And then he came out the door and shot his side of the scene and was screaming at me so hard that I must have appeared deaf, dumb and blind when they cut the film. Right. Because <laughs> I, I had been uh, so I learned a big lesson about uh, television acting, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's done in little pieces. It's a sausage factory. Right. Go and go all out each time that you're uh, you're performing. You don't know what the other side's going to do if they're not there. Now, the thing is this, he was a, uh, what would you say, very much a character actor in the beginning of his career, and he grew into a, a star from there. Uh, does that sound familiar? Hmm. Uh, we'll have to well, see. Well, <laughs> uh, uh, he was a huge television star, as you're saying. I, I've been, I've had a nice career on television, but I would never compare it uh, to his career. He was the, you know, he was the star of a big show and carried the show. I'm a, 
I'm a, a, a solid utility player. I've had great variety in the roles I've played. I guess the closest I've come to a leading man on television would have been China Beach. I got to play opposite the stunning and talented uh, Dana Delaney. Right. As her sort of unrequited love interest during the series, which was great fun. China Beach was, uh, I mean, it was an amazing, you know, uh, experience. Uh, it was an actor's show, a performance-driven show, not, uh, not uh, you know, there's so many, um, what's the word, types of shows that are all uh, driven by the narrative. We call them procedural shows. They're driven by the the details of the story and characterization is much less important now on a lot of television uh, dramas, at least that style of drama, but China Beach was uh, was really a perform, you know, an actor's show, and we we uh, always did another take if the actor wanted to try something different, they gave a lot of respect to the actors. Dana won the Emmy Award two seasons for Best Actress, Mark Helgenberger won at least once for Best Supporting Actress. Um, it was just a great experience most importantly it was it told stories about the vietnam war many of which came directly from vets um uh you know our pilot was co-written by william Broyles, who served uh, in vietnam and uh and the stories were uh, i think in some small way china beach began uh at least as far as a television show kind of helped the start a conversation about Vietnam to sort of begin to heal a little of the lingering rift from that war where where those who served were blamed for the unpopularity of the war rather than thanked as any as any service person deserves to be thanked they're, they're just you know they're owed the thanks of a grateful nation when they came home but because the war was so unpopular that I think that a lot of people in the public confused the you know the policy that they didn't like the government policy with uh, with people who were just serving their country so it was a that was um that was a lesson that i i think it, i hope that we will never have to relearn um you know Complete, in completely agree with you on that and and just because there's little show on time just on this side of it and when we come back I'd like to pick up from there and talk uh, about uh, you, sometimes you're on uh, uh, this new uh, CBS military uh, uh, attorney drama, The Code, also starring Dana Delaney. So well, when we get back from this commercial break, we'll can pick up here uh, with Robert Picardo on Everything Old is New Again. Come on back. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Hello, Mrs. Bornack. My name is Dr. Ravel. Oh, hello. I'm here to tell you that Dr. Ashton won't be able to perform your surgery tomorrow. He's been subpoenaed in a malpractice suit. <laughs> We've got to open him right up. Whatever you say, Dr. Palmer. Dr. Dr. Reed Palmer? That's right, Randy. I believe you know my wife. No I'm a doctor, Mr. Neelix, not a decorator. How many times do I have to tell you, madam? I am a doctor, not a bartender. I'm a doctor, not a performer. I don't have time for such nonsense. Uh, we're back and everything old is new again. It's not nonsense to us. We're enjoying some time here with Robert Picardo himself. That was a little bit of a couple of clips of uh, the doctor himself, let's say, playing a number of times the Golden Girls. 
in 86, yeah. Loverboy in 89, Voyager 95 to 2001. So I don't know. There's something uh, going on with, with Robert Picardo and the uh, the ability to play a doctor on television. Well, I was, yeah. I was pre-med at Yale. So oh. even though I only did that about two years, apparently that's, uh, that's good enough for me to practice on fictional characters. There you go. Did you find it interesting that these roles of a doctor were recurring in your career? Let's put it this way. Uh, there are so many shows on television that are medically based. Medical. There are a lot of legal shows, and, and then there are a lot of uh, police. But I, uh, I am very happy that I was uh, in uh, television medicine <laughs> more than <laughs> television law. I've certainly played my share of lawyers, but I always, I really enjoy the medical arena. It's much better for life and death situations uh, to me than uh, the uh, courtroom. But, you know, I admire actors who, without being lawyers, create amazing characters of uh, illegal dramas. Look at our own William Shatner. Sure, he was great on Star Trek, but my favorite television incarnation of William Shatner is Boston Legal. We're talking with uh, Robert Picardo, who's now going to be also appearing on Dickinson. Can you tell us, uh, I mean, have you had some experience with that? What's that about? Uh, uh, Dickinson is in indeed based, uh, I would have to say somewhat loosely, on Emily Dickinson. Right. Um, it is a period comedy drama. It stars the amazing young actress, Susan Haley Steinfeld. She uh, famously got an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress at age 13, I believe, for the Cone Brothers remake of True Grit. And she plays Emily Dickinson. And I know we're all, we're never allowed to say too much about a show. Right. I think it's incredibly funny and very different from anything I've ever seen. It kind it's kind of a mashup of, of a period piece with a very modern sensibility, as if Emily Dickinson were perhaps the first modern woman born out of time. And uh, it's incredibly clever. And my character is based on an actual historical character. He was a colleague, I think, of Emily Dickinson's father in Congress because Emily Dickinson's father historically ran and, and was elected to Congress. In this, uh, in, in the show, I am her father's friend and political consultant. And I'm, it's it's a fun part. I'm a bit of an unctuous boob. <laughs> <laughs> a stretch, let's and, say. Uh, and we all love the giant, you know, sideburns right. from 1860. But <laughs> it's... Uh, it's. I think the show is. The writing is terrific and very different and really fun. And I'm very anxious to see what America thinks of it. I think it's. It, listen, I, my prediction is that it's going. You're never going to. You'll be surprised at how many. 12 and 14 year old girls are going to be watching a show about Emily Dickinson. I think that's, it's yeah, I think it's great and, and it's on Apple TV so it's got to be part of their of course new uh, online uh, setup so it's going to be like a cornerstone I hope of what happens with the online everything is changing you know. Let's turn back the clock just a little bit. The experience you've had on television is amazing if you go back a little ways you've been with some giants besides Telly Savalas you've had Carol O'Connor on Archie Barker's Place you've been with, uh, acted with, New, Bob Newhart on Newhart, Denzel Washington on St. Elsewhere, George Burns on Oh God, You Devil, of course, the movie, Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield and Robbie, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Tom Hanks in The Burbs. Is there anything, uh, just kind of, there's a lot there, anything that comes to mind that, that uh, it, with respect to this experience of working with these individuals, that comes to light you'd like to share with us? Gosh, 
I, you know, hearing it all again, um, I, I feel luckier than I felt before I talked to you guys. There you go. Uh, but, uh, no, different memories uh, pop up, different moments, like I did with the story with Telly Savalas and the little glob of sure. spit on his head. Uh, Rodney, I had one line in Back to School. I mean, it was a great job, let's face it. I was hired to play the music teacher of his wife, Adrian Barbeau, and I was hired literally. to. I had five scenes where I was making out with his wife wherever he looked the four of the scenes were cut out but the great news is i got to shoot them and uh she's this delightful woman i've seen her as recently as uh, in the last couple of years and she's uh, absolutely the nicest person you'll ever meet but anyway the the scene that i actually spoke in i had one line and by god rodney dangerfield gave me a line reading which is one of my my favorite memories of my career. My line, uh, after I've been rolling on top of his wife in the kitchen, when he comes in and I guiltily climb off the, the uh, counter and she has flour all over. She has giant flowery handprints uh, on her butt. But anyway, I get up and I go, uh, yeah, we were, uh, we were just uh, looking for some cocktail napkins. And he literally, Rodney, gave me a line reading. Yeah, we were just, uh, you know, we were just uh, looking for some cocktail. He gave it and he touched his imaginary bow tie, you know, because he had that tick where he yes. would like he would loosen his tie like he was like he was you know going to explode out of his collar all the time. Right. That, that thing that he did that was so wonderful and characteristic of him. You know, I don't go any, I don't get no respect. And um, I, I don't know whether you're going to bring him up on your own, but the, but the greatest superstar and a great actor all mixed up in one. I had that experience as a very young man because at age 24 I did a Broadway show and had scene after scene alone on stage with the great Jack Lemmon. Um, so having had that experience as a young actor and working with a man of his incredible talent and generosity and self-effacement, I mean, he was just the most, that was that uh, an experience I would wish any young actor could have now, what, work did, with someone like did that. Did he profess or did he teach you, whether it be personally or by example, something that you could share with us, whether it be someone that's a young actor or actress or someone that uh, just in general in their profession in the way that he carried himself? Oh, yeah, many things. The day I met him, I said, uh, Mr. Lemon, it's an honor. He goes, Jack, Jack, kid, just call me Jack. That was the first <laughs> thing he said. And then a week into rehearsal I, uh, or so, I said, uh, uh, Jack, if there's if there's ever anything I'm doing, any choice I'm making that you don't like or you'd like me to do differently, he said, you know, kid, he said, you're too honest and accurate to do anything wrong, so you do whatever you want. These, I mean, th this is unheard of, right? And then we, uh, I was his, literally had these two-hander scenes with him where we would argue and fight on stage. I was a very angry son who had felt that his, uh, felt that Jack's character had been incredibly irresponsible in raising. So anyway, so the character, uh, in the beginning of the play, Jack confesses to his ex-wife, my mother, in a scene alone, that he is dying of cancer and he wants to try to get make a connection, get to know me before he, it's too late. And of course, she, nobody's allowed to tell me that he's sick. So the play, the audience knows from the beginning that he's trying to reach out to me. And they're there for, and he's also Jack Lemmon, who's one of the most popular movie stars in history. So the audience loved him from the get-go. And then here comes his, you know, his self-righteous, you know, prig of a son who's given him a hard time. So I had to battle with the audience, especially the matinee sure. ladies, as well as Jack. Because <laughs> I, when I was tough on him, I could hear them mumbling in the audience during wow. the show. I'd like to kill that kid. But anyway, but of course, by the end, and the more the audience 
hated me that when we when they start to see my point of view, I have a big scene where I tell them off and I begin to stutter because I had a speech impediment when I was a young man. These are all sorts of big demands in this role. And then by the end, the father and son learn something about each other and, and have a meeting of the a meeting of uh, minds and it's quite moving at the end of the play even though most of the play has been very funny well we rehearse in new york we we go to our first out of town tryout in boston at the colonial theater historic theater there and we open and the most important critic in boston gives me the best review in the play literally i writes a paragraph about me the most extraordinary performance in the play is given by a young actor named blah 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 and i thought i would be fired i did Mm. Because you know I'm working with a major movie star, and here I am in Boston, and I get I get the glowing review. Come into the theater the next day, and Jack goes, "Hey, kid, kid, great review, well deserved. Congratulations." Wow. Then we then we open two weeks later in Toronto. I'm giving exactly the same performance, and I am panned. <laughs> and it's like, and I realized at that point two things. First of all, if you're going to believe your good reviews, you got to believe the bad ones. That's a lesson every actor learns. And right. second, but more importantly, the critic, anyone who saw the show, especially a critic, reacted to the story of, through the prism of their own relationship with their father or their son. It, it, if you if you identified with the father, then you could not stand my character. Mm. If you identified with my character of having an irresponsible parent. Then you saw through Jack's facade of, you know, hell fellow, well met. So anyway, so I learned uh, uh, many, many great less life lessons from Jack, but just the whole experience, too, of working with someone who has the power. They have the power of celebrity. They have the power of the audience thinking they know this person, they love him. I mean, Jack was one of those movie stars everybody felt they knew as the guy next door. And he had all of that power that he wore with such grace and so effortlessly and it didn't change him it made he he remained kind and generous and you know because he could just as easily have been you know someone who had that that facade with the public and you know and was uh not that way right he he shared the experience with you and enjoyed it apparently and and enjoyed being with you and didn't have that ego where he had to be on top and every single thing that was being written about the show or said about the show and uh i think that's a a good lesson for us all to put that ego in in check every so often you know well it was it was the it it, arguably it was the peak and i don't say this in a way that you know a negative way but it was such a it was such a career high that i had at age 24 that it's been pretty hard to beat (laughs) (laughs) well we've enjoyed it we'll be back right at this something old is new again with robert picardo look for him in apple tv show dickinson look for him also in cbs on the code and if you're in new york city in may or june enter laughing we'll talk about that when we get back and everything old is new again Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Right now, there's only one alumni from William Penn who made it out there. 
class of 71 former drama club president and character actor Robert Picardo, who plays a hologram on Star Trek Voyager. I love him. Look, with enough Robert Picardos, this school could be put on the map as a training ground for amazing actors, musicians, singers who go on to make millions. You just got permission to give an art scholarship, lady. Oh, there we are. We're back here and everything old is new again and we're uh, having a great time with Robert Picardo who uh, was mentioned in that clip from this new show, Schooled, which is the spinoff from Goldberg's and I, I thought that that was a great little nod to you that came out of nowhere that was apparently real. You actually did go to this uh, same high school, is that correct? I did. I mean, this, the, the actual uh, school is called the William Penn Charter School because it was literally founded by a charter between William Penn and King George. So it's older. The school is older than uh, our country. It is a uh, it is a Quaker day school. It is an amazing place to have the privilege of going to. I can't say enough great things about Penn Charter past and present. And I, uh, I went there from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And uh, because I love the school so much and admire and respect its, its mission statement, its Quaker weekly Quaker meeting that we would have, and so many things about it, I would go back and visit. And in the 90s, while Star Trek was on the air, I went back to meet the present drama students and to see a rehearsal of the show they were working on. And Adam Goldberg was a ninth grader at Penn Charter. He remembered my having visited. So we recreated that moment uh, in the show, which is set in the 90s. So Basically, I go back and play myself uh, 25 years younger. I don't think I fooled anybody on that count, but it is a comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was tremendous. And one of your, I counted them, 458 appearances on whether it be a television show or a movie. So I think that's amazing. And I think that don't give yourself enough credit on some in some level when we talk about uh, how popular an actor you are. I think that, uh, that I must give you a due there in that regard. And, and at the same time, you keep this career going in such a great way that you appear on things that we didn't don't expect and and now you're back with uh, Dana Delaney every so often on the code that shows coming out and and, and right around this time can you share a little bit about us what uh, what you're doing there it's a uh, it's it's also a um, a military legal drama I guess somewhat in the vein of NCIS uh, Dana plays I think a um, I think she plays a full colonel on the show, um, my character is a judge, just a cranky uh, judge who is both a colonel and a judge. So I've done uh, two appearances. It's mostly, it's been somewhat comedic, I think, the character, because he's got such a, uh, he does not suffer fools at all. So, you know, and I, I kind of have a, it's been a career feature that I play characters that are, um, I guess, uh, uh, curmudgeonly cranky. Certainly the doctor on Star Trek was in that vein. So I'm hired to be cranky, and uh, and I think the audience is supposed to smile when they see me. Um, and I haven't had a scene with Dana yet. We had a terrific reunion, you know, in the makeup trailer, chatting away. But uh, it, it would be wonderful to be back yet again in, in their next season and to actually have a scene with her in a military drama for the first time since 19... 19- 1991, almost 30 years prior. That's uh, That would be looked forward to. I would keep uh, an eye out for the code on CBS. You know, she, she looks amazed. Dana is still as beautiful as ever. I mean, she just looks, uh, she doesn't age. So, you know, I went from 
playing um, uh, you know um, uh, a, a romantic interest to her now I look like her father but uh, but it's still it's always a pleasure uh, to <laughs> well, see her speaking of uh, of the curmudgeon type of character just to go back a little bit here on the the Voyager and the image the the, the the doctor and the Voyager that character in the beginning was as you describe very much to the point and then short with people and almost kind of like for science fiction a, a Dr. Smith if you will from Lost in Space in the beginning and, and then as it developed, and as time went, I should say, this character developed into so much more with an emitter that took the character wherever he wanted to go, and with the interpersonal relationships and learning about uh, human beings and so forth. Was Do you think that that's something that the writers saw, the glint in your eye, or however you're presenting this character, that they said, you know, we can run with this, let's, let's go with this? What do you think? The Star Trek writers are very smart, and they know their show very well and what they want to do. Having said that, they also write to the strengths of the actors that they cast. And I got the feeling from the get-go that that when they gave me scenes where the character was cranky, where he was arrogant and puffed up, that they got laughs. Right. And they and they liked that. Uh, when I auditioned for the, the part, I, I mean, uh, I, I'll tell the story really quickly. I, I read the script didn't quite get the doctor character it's very small in the pilot and i asked to read for neelix so i went in and came very close i was one of the three people who tested for neelix including the wonderful ethan phillips an old friend of mine although i didn't know he was my competition at that time hmm. that he ended up getting the role and thank god because i went down to the wire for that part and just for the sake of that decision that it could have been me it could have been him I saved 5,400 hours of my life from being in a makeup chair. Think about that for just a second. Unbelievable. And then the producers came back to me and said, would you read for the part we originally wanted you to read for, The Doctor? And I I didn't get the joke. I didn't feel I did because I didn't understand Star Trek. very. I didn't know that they were going to develop that character the way they did. I just read the, the description, which was which was colorless humorless right a computer program of a doctor which doesn't sound like a bucket of fun for right. seven years but i didn't realize that he was going to be the data the you know he was going to be the outsider character of the show i assumed it would be the vulcan character like spock uh, right. Tuvok. um but uh but but of course spock was half human and half vulcan so that was an eat and tuvok was full vulcan so because spock was half have. He was a duality, and that his he had he was two different natures, so to speak. You know, at war with each other, or one basically ruling over the other. There was that dynamic was very developable in the original series, and similarly, my character, who was like Data, except instead of being hardware like an android, he was a piece of software, but he was also designed to have the capability. Uh, to have a, uh, a bedside manner. So he supposedly had emotional subroutines, and from interacting with patients, he could develop empathy, and and that and that would help him develop uh, his own right. bedside manner, which is shorthand for personality, for being more of a person as as a as a, rather than a medical device. Right. So um, what was great fun about the character, and I didn't get it when I was auditioning for it, is that I I was I was starting at zero. I was starting with a blank slate, and I was going to get to build brick by brick a fully formed human being, a human like character by the end of seven years. So it was a, an amazing experience. Uh, I 
think what made it fun for the audience was I didn't have to obey by the rules of a Starfleet officer. All other Starfleet officers always be hacked, uh, behave, you know, heroically in the face of danger. They are brave. They don't turn around and run away. I had all these negative qualities. I was self-involved. I was even afraid or cowardly in situations that I was not designed for outside of my medical expertise. So I got to play all kinds of negative qualities, uh, self-involvement, arrogance, uh, you know, uh, and then and then rise to my better self and learn each time. And it was, it really was, uh, was a fun, fun part. And I'm very grateful that at my audition, well, I think what got me the part is I had lived a DeForest Kelly joke at the end of my audition. And I believe that's what distinguished me from the 900 other people that had read for the role. I made them laugh. And I guess... I made them laugh by echoing, you know, one of their right. favorite Star Trek characters at the end of the audition when I'm left alone. So they failed to turn off my program in sickbay and I'm, and I'm left, you know, the, 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 holic, the program is active and I have nothing to do. And the last line in the audition scene was, I believe someone has failed to terminate my program. And at that moment, I took a long deadpan look at all of the 19 people that were watching me audition. And <laughs> I said, I'm a doctor not a nightlight <laughs> and, and then I got a big big laugh and was hired later the same day and, and were you a Star Trek fan for the where'd that come from the recesses I hate to a- answer that question because <laughs> I have to tell the truth and I wasn't a Star Trek fan I mean I've the... since confessed myself at the feet of the faithful and I've I've seen the light now I get it now but back then but was in the, it was in the lexicon know, I, I guess right I, I was a, I was the lost in space fan and you were very prescient by mentioning Dr. Smith because I I, well, I watched Lost in Space, frankly, because Angela Cartwright was the cutest thing I'd ever seen at 14 years old. <laughs> but I, but really, I did, I did borrow much more from um, from Doctor Smith than I did from any of the previous Star Trek um, doctors, because uh, he had this wonderful ability to be, you know, he had those great eyes. Jonathan had those amazing, were so expressive and, and usually expressing disdain. I borrowed a lot from him. I want to, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about an Apple TV show about Emily Dickinson that I understand is uh, more or less a comedy and that you might be uh, some comic relief there. How we can do that with Emily Dickinson, I don't know. But we'll find out right about uh, on this. Everything old is new again with Robert Picardo. We're going to be right back right after this. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. By Grabthar's hammer, by the sons of Warvan, I shall avenge you. Next. Had I moved an inch to the left, the beast would have killed me. On the other hand, my crew was in danger. How did you know what to do? Come on. Without my crew, I'm not a commander, huh? I think we all remember what happened to that beast on Enoch 7, right? <laughs> Gotta admit, they really do love him. 
Yeah, almost as much as he loves himself. There we go. We're back here on Everything Old is New again with Douglas Viviani and David Cohn. We're sharing uh, our hour with Robert Picardo of many things, but one of which you may uh, be familiar is the EMH from Voyager. That was a little piece of Galaxy Quest, the Tim Allen uh, uh, movie that uh, Robert Picardo appeared with him for two episodes in 93 at Home Improvement. Uh, brilliant movie about science fiction and fans and fandom and conventions and kind of a thinly veiled William Shatner character. Um, I've been to many uh, Star Trek conventions and enjoyed your appearances and, and uh, William Shatner is, let's say, the Babe Ruth and, and uh, Leonard Nimoy would be the, uh, let's say, Lou Gehrig, if you will. Uh, we're looking uh, at... Uh, just for a moment, conventions and, and Robert Picardo on stage is engaging, funny, uh, takes uh, questions and, and, you know, you come to the stage with something also to present. And I think it's wonderful when you have the, the opportunity to address fans and, uh, and you're just uh, uh, very quick and into the moment. It's not like it's something that you are sort of just kind of there and I'll answer a few questions and move on. It seems like you're truly engaging with the fans and enjoying that. Am I misinterpreting? Or am I oh, no, not in the least. Listen, I, I mean, I, I was described early on in convention life by people who knew me as a lounge act waiting to happen. There you go. I mean, I, I love the Star Trek appearances. I really enjoy the, the stage time, the stage talks in front of the audience. Sometimes we're moderated. Most of us prefer to be unmoderated, unfiltered. Right. And just, you know, I, I always try to do something different for the audience, which is why I'm blessed that people come and see me over and over again because right. I, I really I do different things, not just tell different stories. I sing, I perform different pieces of material. I try to mix it up and keep it fun because ultimately, if it's fun for me, then it's going to be fun for them. That sounds like such a cliche, but if I'm doing something that's interesting and engaging from just trying something different, then that the audience uh, gets that, I think, than if you're just, you know, droning on. And certainly some of the stories are repeated, but even, even telling them in different ways, even giving this one a little more time or taking one that, you know, you've told before and just doing the highlights so that you just mix it up a lot. And But mostly it's the audience senses when you're enjoying yourself. Exactly. And, I am. And, and a lot of the actors, too, they're, you know, to be fair, they just... They don't feel comfortable. They, you know, they don't think that's part of their job as being an actor. And some of them would never really take to the, you know, here is here is what I am as a personality as well. They they don't they don't necessarily think that that's part of the job, so they don't take as easily to it. But as I said, I enjoy it. It's the most. You know, it's the most positive audience you can have, a room full of Star Trek fans when it's you're a Star Trek performer. So Absolutely, you can uh, almost do no wrong, you know. It, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a little it's a little too easy. But if you try to challenge yourself and do something different, I'm, I'm known for, you know, doing song parodies, literally writing them backstage right before I go on sometimes. So Yeah, you do bring I, something I, new. I and, yes, and that's... that's uh, let's put it this way. Two things. William Shatner, for example, was of the same ilk uncomfortable in the beginning he'll admit and tell you that and didn't do conventions and so forth and now he he does what you do bring something new a little story in his life something that happened a humorous and story and uh, not just to come on stage and just answer uh, the questions which i'm not putting anybody down but when you are able to enjoy it like you say and bring something to the table uh brand new whether it be the song or you know 
different story, whatever it might be. Uh, that is uh, really lends to the experience and makes you want to come back for more. Because I, I, it's not like I've seen this person; they're going to do the same thing. This is a brand new uh, uh, you know, incarnation of Robert Picardo. So, um, question is, with respect to William Shatner. Um, we hear a lot of things behind the scenes and so forth. Is is he uh, uh, fun, interesting, uh, dour? What what is his experience with your experience with him? On, at- I I uh, listen. Uh, Bill always remembers who I am, which with the many 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 people he's plus. met all yeah. in his life, and who knows if he's ever watched a single Voyager episode. He always remembers who I am. He always says hello. He's always very gracious uh, to me. I I am constantly amazed at how. Uh, how incredibly quickly his mind works, and how and how quickly and quietly he speaks. You know, um, he, uh, at this stage, I'm I just hit sixty five this year, and I'm already talking a little bit louder than I used to talk five years ago. Right. And Shatner uh, still, uh, you know, in his uh, middle eighties, just uh, speaks with the same pace and offhanded you know uh volume of of someone 25 years younger than he is um so having said all of that um i don't feel i know him at all but i but i have a number of star trek colleagues not so much from my show but from the other shows who are quite good friends with him and have spent a lot of time with him and and just uh you know and and have really gotten uh really gotten to know him but that that hasn't been my experience. I just right. haven't had that much time around him. Right. I mean, he's a man that, that, especially at these conventions, is pulled in 16 different directions at once, let's face it, and everyone wants a piece of him. And I've never had a bad experience with him from the other side of the table. You know, uh, he's been very nice and gracious uh, with respect to answering a question or signing an autograph or whatever it might be. You know, so. he, did, he did a thing that didn't quite work out uh, while the show was on the air. He tried to do something where you launched, where he did interviews with all of the Star Trek actors. And I think it was something where people, fans would call in and pay, you know, I don't even know know a a few cents a minute or whatever to hear interviews with their favorite actors it was a business venture in the 90s that didn't quite work out but what it meant is that he sat down with each of us and interviewed us for about two hours and he i have to tell you he was a good interviewer he really was he listened he asked questions that came out of what you just said so you know i mean he was you know he may have been doing it as I said, as a business venture, but he did it. He he did it very well. Yeah, he did and, it well uh, on that that raw yeah. nerve which he did on cable and so forth. So, speaking about appearing live, though, let's turn pivot a little bit here. Um, and what am I doing next? <laughs> uh, that's what I was going to say. This Enter Laughing, which I understand is from Carl Reiner's semi-autobiographical book, and will be um, uh, you will be performing it in the New York Theater May and June. Tell us a little. Is, I think there's a little music in there as well. No. Uh, yeah, oh, it is a mu- musical. Um, uh, Enter Laughing was originally a memoir, as you said. And at the time, he was working with uh, Joe Stein on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. And right. Joe Stein said, you know, you, your book here would make a great Broadway show. And Connor Reiner said, here, make it. <laughs> and gave the rights to Joe Stein. Joe Stein made a Broadway show that turned Alan Arkin at age 29 into a star playing the lead character, which was based on Carl Reiner as a young man in post-depression New York who wanted to be an actor. And uh, and then then they made a very successful movie out of the Broadway show. And, uh, and then they made a failed musical comedy out of it, I think, in the late 70s. But 
this uh, wonderful Stuart Ross, who created Forever Plaid and other uh, musicals, worked with Joe Stein, the original writer, before he passed away, and, and retooled the musical. Had a very successful run in New York about eight or nine years ago, and now it's being revived at the at the York Theater, which revives musicals for their 50th anniversary. It will be the opening show of their season. And I'm, I didn't do the New York production eight or nine years ago, but I did the L.A. production about four years ago. I play the father of the Carl Reiner, young Carl Reiner character, the father of the lead boy, who's a nice Jewish man who can't believe his son wants to go into show business. Mm-hmm. And I have a great uh, duet in the second act with the character of my, uh, my, my son has a day job. In addition to trying to be an actor at night, he has a job in a tool repair place and his boss and i have this kind of what's the matter with kids today number which is great fun where we where we sing and dance so it's uh you know it's it's fun for me it's the the real joy for me is to be back on a new york stage for the first time in nearly 40 years when i closed on broadway with jack lemon in tribute it was the end of 1979 wow wow so that makes it 39 years since i've been on a broad i've done plenty of theater in California and regional theater elsewhere, but I haven't been on a New York stage, you know, except for one performance about a week or so ago in the play Nassim, where I was the guest star of the night. Right. They have a different actor every night starring in the show. I haven't been on a Broadway stage, sorry, a New York stage in a long time. It's only off-Broadway, but hopefully I will reintroduce myself to the New York theater community, and I will do some more theater a, a few more times around the track before I, uh, I'm on the wrong side of the grass. That's oh. what I'd like. We're very much looking forward to that. I have to tell you, uh, we've had a great time with Robert Picardo. He's going to be on Dickinson on Apple TV. He's going to be in The Code, which is on now at CBS. He's going to be in New York City, May and June at the York Theater. Enter laughing. Get involved. This gentleman will always, always entertain you. Put a smile on your face, whether you like it or not. We had a great time. Thank you so much for joining us on Everything Old is New Again. Thank you, Doug and Dave. All right, excellent. We're going to have a great uh, a great experience this week and next week on every week on Everything Old is New Again, your pop culture entertainment talk show. Come on back.